This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. We are rebranding today as the Imbalance of Power Roundtable because we're not balanced today. Paul Hodes, the former U.S. congressman who usually presents the perspective from the left, is off today. And what's left is pretty great. I mean, we have Alicia Preston, our conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, and you've got me, Matt Robeson, your host. I'm usually coming at you from kind of the center, center left. I, I, Alicia, what do I got to do today? Do I have to lean further to the left to balance things out again? Or should we just go right off the right wing rails today? I think you should channel Paul Hodes. But by doing that, I mean, try to imitate his imitations. Oh, so a lot of Vladimir Putin. And yeah. I can't do his Bernie. And I, I, just, pretty I can't good. do it. All right. I'll, I will. I will do my best. Uh, so we are going to do our best to try to give a balanced look at what is going on. And, you know, I really want to start with something smart that you wrote, Alicia. It was kind of, it was sort of a plea to everybody. Could we like push out the jive, bring in the love here a little bit? Oh, you just wrote this article, Seacoast Online. Tell, tell us what it was about. It's about hate and it's about pervasive hate in this country. And what startles me the most is it's over something about political partisanship, you know, and Matt, I called you out without calling you out because I couldn't get a hold of you in time to be like, can I use your name? So I just said someone, you know, people say, stop both siding this issue. You love to tell me to stop both siding the issue. I do. And, I love you that. You do. And I, I was like, I- I'm going to call him out. And, and oh, you should have just done me- it. You have my permission. You can call me out in the future. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. So noted. Well, well, well hold on. <laughs> can, can we, we'll, you know, offline, we'll put some parameters on that. on that. Otherwise, yeah, go. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. And I'm like, no, I'm going to absolutely both, both side the issue of hate. If you go on and let's just take Twitter, because that'll loop into something we're talking about later. <clears throat> Everyone keeps telling us uh, they'll share an article or a meme that does a policy or a statement and see, see the insert party hates America or hates you. And both sides are absolutely doing it. And then there were specific examples. You know, Deborah Messing the other day shared a meme of Hitler marching before the Nazi troops and said, your daily reminder, there's something worse than inflation and it's fascism, which is just a direct attack at, at, you know, partisanship saying Republicans are fascists because we're the ones talking about inflation. Republican firebrand Ann Coulter and Don Jr. uh, made fun of Fetterman, the U.S. Senate Democratic candidate from Pennsylvania after his debate performance, not because of anything he said that had anything to do with policy or leadership, but because, you know, the man had a stroke and they were making fun of him. Don Jr. going as far as saying he's brain dead. And you see this kind of Rob Reiner, the famous you know movie maker, saying the GOP are full of anti-Semitic white nationals. And it's just so extreme out there that you you read the hate, you begin to believe the hate, and then you begin to feel the hate. And once you start feeling that hate, things get dangerous. And that bothers me. And yeah, I'm going a little 60s hippie on this. Where's the love, man? 
You you are. I, I mean, I definitely think of you clad in love beads and bell bottoms. Um, you know, all right, I'm going to surprise you by agreeing with you a little bit here, a little bit. Um, but then I'm gonna but then I'm gonna close out by disagreeing with you a little okay, bit. Here we go. Fine. All right. Where I agree, and where I, I see the connection point between your argument and your article and something that I wrote last week is on this idea that the response to anger and hatred from the other side is to raise the stakes. And it's because of the dynamic we've gotten into in this country about how we do campaigns. They have become, now look, it's, I, I don't want to look back with rose colored glasses on 20 years ago, 30 years ago, to a beautiful time where we all agreed. No one ever said anything unfair or scurrilous about the other side. No, no. But there is a, a particular style of engagement that we've gotten into that is very much fueled by a couple of things, social media and online, particularly email fundraising, which we've talked about on this show before tends toward the most extreme version of rhetoric that you can muster up because you're trying to elicit an emotional response from people who are already on your side. If you're doing it for fundraising purposes, you're doing it because you want them to click a button and give you $5 or chip in is usually the way they say it in emails or in texts. Can you chip in $3 by midnight, you know, or um, someone's going to shoot this puppy, that kind of thing. And if you're doing it for overall election purposes, it's usually for turnout. My point in my Newsweek article last week, and it was about debates, was this is what we see in debates, but it's just one part of what we see overall in campaigns, which is it's a little bit like if you got into an argument with your spouse, if your spouse said, you didn't take out the trash, and you instead of saying, well, sorry, I was working late tonight. I was just held at work. I, I, I got back late. I usually do it, but this time I wasn't able to. You say, yeah, well, your cooking sucks. And <laughs> that's that's generally the way we do debates right. in this country. And it's generally the way we do political arguments in this country is rather than talk about the underlying issue involved the way you would with your spouse to have a productive disagreement with your spouse. Like, okay, I acknowledge you know, this could have been better. And in the future, you know, we'll, we'll do this, but I, I have to say, I, I have done this, you know, you, I just you, like to point out my husband's Greek and I'm half Irish. So normally the conversations don't go down like that. Just state in the audience. I, I, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to get into any ethnic related patterns of behavior here. Let people, let we fit every stereotype, water. just yeah. letting you know. Fantastic. Okay. That's okay. great. <laughs> but I, so, okay. So I agree with you that that is an underlying problem. And like you, I think it is solvable in pieces, maybe not all at once, but we could start by, people should check out my Newsweek article. We could start by forcing debates into a different mode so that we have more productive arguments. Marriage counselors teach this, how to have productive fights with your spouse that don't turn into, yeah, well, you're bad. No, you're bad. You know, And there's a way we could do that However, here's where I disagree. I do think, and you saw this in the Paul Pelosi attack aftermath, after the weekend, I do think that when Republicans engage 
in a certain amount of both sidesism about violence, about extremism. That is an intended deflection. It is obscuring the fact that, yes, there are examples of extremism and violence that come from the left. But FBI statistics, the the Trump Department of Homeland Security, experts on violence and extremism all say consistently that the problem coming from the left is dwarfed by the problem coming from the right. And that conspiracy theories that lead to violence and and hatred directed at political leadership is far and away a bigger problem on the right. So I will accept your article and your argument, and I will agree with it. But what I would love to see is a little bit of uh, humbleness, a little bit of contrition, a little bit of acknowledgement coming from our conservative faction in this country that, you know what? There is a bigger problem in our own house to clean up, and we will work on that as part of the solution here. Where I think, and I've called out my own house, quote unquote, thousands of times over the you last have. few years. You have. Um, but I do think it's a, a problem with both sides, and here's why. You know, I don't know. I'm, I haven't read four million tweets in the last four days, but, you know, whether one doesn't more than the other, I went online to look and I just saw scathing hatred spewing from everywhere. And one side fuels the other. And that goes in both direction. And so we're fueling this pile of hate. And what I don't get, what I don't get the most is it is rarely over a policy. It is rarely over an issue. It is over something as what I consider mundane as whether you have a D or an R next to your name. It's not rooted in a belief of anything, but how you register to vote. Now, where I think I get so stumped up and and I can't comprehend this is I grew up in a household with a father who was an Irish Catholic Democrat from Massachusetts and a mother who was an English Protestant Republican from New Hampshire. Like I grew up in the most politically divided house you can have. And they discussed politics at our dinner table every night and they voted differently. And my father would be there when my mother hosted cocktail parties for Republican candidates. And my father, my mother would be there when my father hosted one for Jimmy Carter, because you don't hate someone just for something like that. And it, it, it boggles my mind. And I think it's a problem. And I think it's a problem for everyone. We just don't like each other. And I think we have to stop not liking each other for reasons like that accepted this will be like an improv comedy routine you know the rule in improv comedy is you have to yes and everything you accept and build right mm-hmm. and so i will accept but the build that i i'm going to insist on here is just recognizing that this this effect in america what we're talking about here the polarization the the vitriol the the anger is asymmetric I I just I think that what Democrats want is just an acknowledgement from Republicans that, you know, this isn't a blame thing. It's a let's look at how to fix this thing. And I think it's an acknowledgement of, yes, we can we can see that there are examples that come from the left. Steve Scalise, the third ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, was shot 15 years ago by a left-wing nut job. Was it that long now? It was it was 2007. Wow, that's so, crazy. you know, I mean, there are examples of these things happening. There was violence at Black Lives Matter protests. There was not, 
the same level of violence. There wasn't an insurrection like we saw coming from the right wing at the Capitol, but there was some violence. The thing that bothers Democrats is when those examples and the examples of online anger are used not by you, but by by, by politicians cynically online to deflect and to say, well, this really is both sides. Look no further than Elon Musk. Look no further than Republican leaders, Ted Cruz, over the weekend saying that the Paul Pelosi attack, well, you know, it was conspiracy theater time. It was, well, maybe this guy was actually left wing. He couldn't possibly have been right wing because he was once a member of a nudist group. Let's call yeah. out this conspiracy for what it actually is. It's pure bleepity 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 bleep insanity. Insanity, right. It's insanity. I mean, you've got people like Terrence Williams, who has 20 million followers on Twitter, telling the world, which Elon Musk also did when he shared a bogus story, that the 82-year-old Paul Pelosi had a male escort with him in the middle of the night and they got in a lover's quarrel. Somehow there were two hammers, only one was... It, it is like so off the wall, ridiculous, like soft porn nonsense. It makes right. QAnon seem rational. Let's just it does. let's be direct with what it is. Yes, right, right, right. So so and, and again, are there left wing conspiracy theories out there? Yes, there are. But for the most part, it's on the right. Are there left wing people who don't believe in elections, you know, out there? Yes. But for the most part, that's on the right. Are there instances of left wing violence? Yes. But again, FBI statistics, Chris Ray, the head of the FBI in congressional testimony, for the most part, violent extremism is emanating from the right. I don't say this to do what's called blame storming. I say this, and I think that most Democrats, when they when they point this out, say this because they're trying to use the four-part formula for productive conflict mediation. Let's He's getting out. intellectual on us, guys. Yeah. Here are the four steps. Here's what we need. Number one, in the future, really important. Number two, from you, the person you're talking to, number three, to make things work, number four. And I think what what we're trying to say here is, okay, we acknowledge there is some, there are some examples both sides, but it is asymmetric. And what we as a country need from Republicans in the future, we're not looking backwards, in order to make this whole America thing work is for you to acknowledge and look at the greater problem that's occurring on your side. Well, I think both sides have to do that. Look at the greater problem on their side. I don't think one side can fix this. Like I said, they fuel each other's hate toward each other. Um, I, I don't own the attack on Paul Pelosi because I'm a Republican. I have no intention yet. I don't believe in the belief system and I am very anti-violence and I don't think that Republicans have to own the attack on Paul Pelosi any more than Democrats because they're Democrats have to own any attacks that happen during rioting. I, I just don't think that's true. I agree with you. If we don't want to own them, we can't subscribe to them. We have to denounce them. But you know, if you are subscribing to the idea of this insane conspiracy theory and you're trying to dismantle Paul Pelosi, an 82 year old man with homophobic rants and nonsense, you do all because you are somewhat behind what caused the level of hate of the attacker. Agreed. Agreed. And and look. The Republican Party and politics in America are never going to be healthy 
until Republicans, and this is something that Democrats can't do for you, until you have surgery and you cut out the cancer of MAGA Trumpism from within your party, because that is the faction and it's an awfully big percent. Something like 45% of Republicans say that they believe in QAnon. And I'm not saying that it's as simple as a surgery. It takes leadership. It takes time. It takes a leader. Maybe a Ron DeSantis could be, maybe a Glenn Youngkin, maybe a, a Chris Sununu, your boy, could Man, provide some yeah. of this function, right? President 2024. Exactly. <laughs> to help, you know, you need leaders to lead people out of, you know, the, the depths. Like we needed Moses to lead us out of the wilderness, right? But like, you know, there, there's going to have to be some leadership here to take people away from the darkness. And again, all I think that Democrats want, we will we will stand up and say, all right, we've got some crazy on our side too. We need to bring the temperature down online too. But the bigger problem, and America cannot move forward unless we confront the elephant in the room. One, one final thing on this, because I know you want to move on, though, with what you just said, and I have experiences directly over the past four to five years. Um, I keep hearing from Democrats, Republicans, all we want you to do is stand up, stand up against that wing of the party, stand up against extremism. That's all we want from you, common sense Republicans. So I do it. I do it again and again and again. I get hate storms of email and social media posts because guess what the reality that I, I didn't do it soon enough. I didn't do it hard enough. I didn't do it strong enough because the reality is Democrats don't want me to be a common sense Republican standing up against my own party. They want me to become a Democrat. I, it's, you know what? I, I acknowledged, agreed. Hey, people don't hate on Alicia. She's fine. She's I'm fine. She's, she's, she's pretty good. She's all right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously, no, you're great. And um, you don't need to hear that from me. Yeah, whatever. I, you don't need my affirmation. My poodles like me. That's about all I need. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, you know. I, I don't even have a dog. I, <gasps> tell me you don't have a cat, Matt, because then we're going to have beef. No, no, no. I'm anti. I can handle I, you being a Democrat, but animals cat, come in two kinds, it. dangerous and delicious. And uh, cats are neither. Um, but yes, true. And people should not criticize Republicans for those things if they are trying to be part of the solution here. We want to actually empower and enable Republicans who are trying to be part of the solution without requiring them to become Democrats. The, the, I think some of the explanation for that, for that dynamic is that Democrats now worry that if you put Republicans in power at all, you're basically enabling the Trump MAGA wing of the party. You're enabling the extremists. You're putting Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene in positions of power, and we can't abide that. And that's that's the problem. That's why the stakes feel so high. By the way, one one final thing on on this note. Um, we since we briefly touched on Elon Musk. I mean, it, how it, Twitter's terrible. I engage on Twitter. P please follow me. I'm at Matt L. Robeson. I, I engage on Twitter because I have to. But I how 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 worried should we be that he's no matter what he says about not turning it into like a free for all hellscape or whatever he said, like this is bad, right? I, I don't think it's bad. And here's why. 
Because I think Twitter was a free-for-all hellscape before Elon Musk took it over. I just think it's a cesspool. And I'm at AP Preston. And I do not engage very much. But when I do, you can follow me. I follow Matt. Um, So, no, literally, I I don't think the concept of Twitter can get any worse than what it was and what it is and what it will be. And we should all purge ourselves from it at AP Preston. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? That's that's a phenomenal point. It's like, oh no, you come in and ruined our pigsty. How dare you? Now that we've gotten through the unpleasant part of the discussion, let's let's talk about some some interesting stuff. Um, let's start with I I did a show yesterday. It's in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. People should check it out. I had a former colleague and a top-notch Democratic consultant. He's on all kinds of key races with big names you've heard of um, around the country right now. And he offered something that I just, I hadn't thought of it. I, I just hadn't thought of it, which, um, it, but it's, it. once he said it, it was so obvious. There's an interesting quirk in the way campaigns do polling. So, Alicia, maybe you could help us kind of walk through this. So most people experience polling from kind of a public polls perspective. You know, we'll we'll check out a website, we'll read about a poll in the news, and it's it's for public consumption. It's trying to give us a sense of what issues people care about and where elections may be going. But campaigns use polls in a different way. When when you're a campaign consultant, when you're wearing that hat, how do you use polls and what you do? Well, I mean, you want to initially gauge like a name ID on a candidate. It helps you steer the strategy as to what you need to do right out of the gate. But the important stuff is when you're polling issues, you're finding out what is in the topmost of people's minds. And, you know, I think what you're going to get, I don't want to take what you're saying, but it's a very interesting point. When do you do that? You know, campaigns tend to do it at the very start. Let's get where we are on the ground. What's going on? I was talking to a congressional campaign about three, four weeks ago, because they were talking all on one topic, one topic, one topic, and their polling told them that. And I actually said to them, you got a boatload of money in the bank, go back in the field, go back in the field, do another issue poll. I think you're wrong about what people are talking about. But here's the other problem out with polling. Um, I got two polling calls this recent Sunday during the Patriots game in New England. Seriously, pollsters, (laughs) you're not going to get an accurate outcome if you're polling New England during a Patriots game. And that may sound stupid, but it's actually true. All you got to do in a year like this is skew that poll 2% and you're wrong because everything's so tight. It's just dumb strategy. People have gotten lazy. That's a problem. Well, that's it's an interesting wrinkle that you bring up because most campaigns we're, we're used to thinking, I guess, in presidential campaign terms, and they have hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal. They probably employ um, one main pollster, but they may employ a couple of others to to do some niche polls or some state based polls. And, you know, they have a lot of resources. There's a lot of polling. If you're a Senate candidate, a gubernatorial candidate, or especially a House of Representatives candidate, you're dealing with many fewer polls. Polls cost a lot of money, a surprising Mm -hmm. amount of money because they're hard to do. Um, You have to make thousands of calls in order to get your sample, sometimes tens of thousands. It's it's very, very hard to get people on the phone who will participate in the poll. There's a lot of work that goes in. And so what you typically do is you have one major 
benchmark poll, which is sort of your big direction setting exercise. And you want to do it because it's just a snapshot of where things stand. You want to do it as close as possible to the time where you're going to be putting together your, your major ads, your mail, your TV, your social media, so that you get as accurate a read as possible on where things are. So you're probably doing it in late August because people start to pay attention after Labor Day. So here's the problem that Mark brought up. This year, we had a very interesting pattern where over the summer, the news environment favored Democrats and the news was all about January 6th hearings and the Dobbs decision and the falling price of gas, most of all, and then the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. That was the atmosphere in mid to late August when all these campaigns were doing their benchmark polls. And then what happened? The news environment changed and gas prices began to go up. And in early October, the move from Saudi Arabia to cut oil production moved them up even further. And all of a sudden, other issues were dominating the news cycle, in large part because Fox News was pushing, you know, the immigration stunt, the Ron DeSantis flying immigrants to, to Massachusetts and crime. And lo and behold, as the issue environment changed, you, what you see is Democrats potentially being misaligned between where people's heads are at and the kinds of messages that they're pushing. And I, I, Mark brings up the intriguing possibility that Democrats just kind of misread the room because of the timing of their benchmark polls. So, okay, what do you make of that theory? I think it's a very interesting theory. And I think this is a unique year in that the issue did ping away really fast, very quickly in a matter of a few weeks. Um, and it would put uh, Democrats and Republicans in a difficult position to know what to talk about unless they did one thing, one thing which is completely unscientific and yet wholly more effective. I see all over social media and in my mail pictures. Great time at the Democratic Party picnic this weekend. Great time at the Republican cocktail party this weekend. OK, if you're going to a Republican event or a Democrat event, you're not a swing voter and you're not talking about what they're talking about. You know where you need to go out to dinner and sit at the bar out to breakfast and sit at the counter. Go knock on people's doors. Go to a farmer's market and ask them what they're talking about. What am I talking about? That this turnip cost two times what it did last year. You will get more anecdotally from the public, particularly if you're doing something like a congressional district where you can actually get out there enough and really know what people are talking about. And that will be more accurate than what they're willing to tell a pollster anyway. That's, that's really interesting. And it's, it is so hard to get that pulse. Now, look, Mark did point out that that wasn't like the final poll. And I do think you know, for, for some campaigns. And I do think that Democrats were able to take advantage of information that they were getting from a variety of sources and course correct a little bit. But it just, it is interesting that they may have been caught a little bit, not even in like a bad way, just by a quirk of how things timed out this year. We were talking on this show back in August about just the possibility that maybe Republicans had put too many of their eggs in the inflation messaging basket. And that, you know, maybe if, if things continue to go in the direction that they were, that that would leave them kind of off key on, on the message they were pushing. But then reality went in the other direction and gas prices went back up and the salience of, you know, they, they were able, you know, using 
right-wing media outlets, they were able to really push the immigration and crime messages and the salience of those issues rose too. And all of a sudden they were, they were back in the game. So anyway, interesting stuff. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know how to, maybe you're just, unless you do, you know, Alicia, what you just prescribed, it's hard to know how campaigns can sort of avoid this happening to them. It's just sort of the way campaigns work. Well, campaigns need to change their formula. Particularly, you know, they're literally doing it. Too many of them, the same way in 2022 as they were doing it in 1980, and it doesn't work that way anymore. Technology means it doesn't work that way anymore. Social media makes, means it doesn't work that way anymore. The ability to advertise across so many platforms means it doesn't work that way anymore. And we've got to change the message, and you've got to pay attention to the electorate. And I don't think it's been a secret. I mean. All the Democrats your friends had to do, Matt, was listen to me for the past five months <laughs> saying abortion's not going to be the issue. And let me tell you where it's going to be proven that that was the case in swing states like New Hampshire, for instance, not saying it's the same for red or blue states, but in swing states like New Hampshire, where we have a federal delegation that's Democrat and a, a state del- a state representative that is all Republican. The abortion issue sent it back to the states. Democrats have been beating it into our head, beating it into our head that our, our state senators and House members and governor are going to take away abortion rights, which isn't true in New Hampshire. What's going to happen next Tuesday in New Hampshire is I can't tell you what's going to happen on the federal level. Those races are far too close. But on the state level, Republicans are going to win the House, the state Senate and the governors. What does that tell me? That the year was never about abortion, because if it were, it's now a state's issue. Why wouldn't you take responsibility on that level? Well, the one thing I'll add to that is that, you know, Mark pointed out on the air, and I agree with him that, again, remember, each of these campaigns is its own little small business, right? You've Mm -hmm. got a campaign budget. You know, let's say you're running a house race. Let's say you're Chris Pappas in New Hampshire or Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. You know, you're, you're in a tight race. You're a Democrat. You've got a couple million dollar budget, depending on the media market and how good you are at fundraising. And you're making decisions. You actually don't get to do a lot of messaging, you know, and there's only so much that you can affect voter perceptions of you because it's a very congested media situation. So you've really, you know, you've got to make some choices. Now, what you've been preaching is you've got to address the economic issue. You've got to address inflation. You've got to at least show some empathy. And Mark's response to that was, well, I agree But that's not the job of the individual campaign, because they're not going to change voter impressions on that from their little tiny media budget compared to the vast earned media environment and all the other messaging that's going out there. That's something that really needs to be pushed at a national level from the White House. And it has to be a concerted effort on the part of the party. And it has to be done for a long, long time. And there was no effort. There was sort of a a vacuum on that economic message. And that left each of the individual campaigns to sort of triage the best they could. And what happened was they all looked at their individual polling, which said, look, the best winning message we've got is abortion. And to go back to your earlier point in the show, to attack the heck out of the other side and call them vile extremists. And that's if that's your winning path, then that's what you're going to opt to do. And so overall, as a whole, the Democratic Party never addressed the economic argument, even though they have a story to tell, even though they have a case to make. And the Republicans have kind of won hands down on that issue. Right. I think that's true. And I think 
you know, shame on them from not being prepared for it. You know, the, the, the Dobbs decision came down and it was like every Democrat running for office was like, yay, we're going to win in November now. And they, they didn't read the room, the room being the American country, the people. They didn't read the room. And I think we're going to have significant gains in the House because of that. I'm still not quite sure what's going to happen in the U.S. Senate. Every race is so tight. That would be the, the, the difference maker at that level. Um, but I think you're going to see some significant gains in the House. Well, look, I will say this. I will say this. Given the historic pattern, right, which is an average in a president's first term of losing 37 seats in the House, and given his low approval ratings, which are that low because of partisanship and high gas prices, it's actually stunning. And this is a point that Doug Thornell made, our guest last week on Beyond Politics. He probably makes more ads for Democrats than any other single person alive. And his point was like, look, given where we are, Republicans should actually be wiping the floor with us. The fact that they're not at this at this point says something about the Democratic Party. It's not that they've been wholly ineffective, and it's not like there isn't a chance that next Tuesday will go okay for Democrats. It's just that there is a gap, and there's something Doug pointed out before in sort of the core economic messaging coming from the Democratic Party and the failure nationally to address the number one thing on voters' minds. Um, let's, you know, what I want to talk to you about a, a little bit. One, one thing that I raised in my Newsweek article was obviously debates are stupid, but I also kind of raised, and this is something I did in a video. I, I, our sometime guest, I think he's actually going to be our guest on Beyond Politics again this week, Cliff Schechter, who's another Democratic consultant. He did a, a ads for Joe Biden in 2020, um, and he has a great video channel. You can sometimes find commentaries and even full Beyond Politics podcast shows on that channel. So uh, look for the takedown and subscribe to that, please. Um, you know, so one thing that that he has pointed out is this this Fetterman debate issue. And I did a commentary uh, for him on on that channel where I'm like, look, you know, you said earlier that you don't want people to judge John Fetterman based on the fact that the dude had a stroke and it makes him hard to it makes it hard for him to speak and not like jumble his words a little bit and to understand spoken language. His brain seems fine. He seems just as smart as he used to be. His values are the same. And you were saying the exact same thing that I said in my article. We want people to judge candidates based on those things. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to take a nonpartisan, unbiased view of this question of how do we evaluate John Fetterman's stroke in light of his clear problems in the debate. Let me ask you, do you think that what we know of the problems that he faces, do you think that that limits his ability to do the job of a U.S. senator? And if so, in what ways? The answer is I don't know. Look, I think it is perfectly fair game when you are going to vote for someone who is the second highest elected office in the land for a six year term to evaluate their health, whether it's mental, physical or emotional, and take that into consideration when you are casting your vote. I think that is totally fair game. My problem with the whole reaction to the Fetterman debate where he did not come across verbally and presentationally well is they were going after his verbal ability in his presentation, not whether he has the qualities to do the job. 
And that's where I think you're right. That that's the legitimate question. Does he have the faculties to do the job? Look, I have no idea. I'm not medically qualified to know that. And I'm not a voter in Pennsylvania paying close enough attention to watch him every day to see it. But I'm kind of coming down in the middle of this topic overall that I think it is totally fair to take into consideration that like five months ago, he had a stroke. What does that say about his overall health? Can he fulfill the term? And will it affect his ability to serve? I do think that we're a little limited in evaluating that question because we don't have a full medical evaluation and none of us has perfect foreknowledge. We don't know, but based on what we know, what his doctors have said, what other doctors who have evaluated cases like his have said, what we know is that his limitation is his thinking is fine. His understanding of issues is, is, is conceptualization is fine. It's his ability to process spoken language and then speak back and not get things jumbled, which is why he asked for and got an accommodation to have things closed captioned, because when he's reading information, it's fine. I will tell you from a perspective of a former congressional staffer, now granted on the House side, not the Senate side, they're very, very similar. It's virtually the same thing. And you are a staffer from a campaign standpoint, not in Congress, but it's a very, very similar job. Here's my take on it. Based on what we know and based on the job of being a U.S. senator. So let's break that down. First, you have to be able to make decisions about how you're going to vote. No limitation in that regard, as far as we know. You have to come up with legislation that you're going to offer. Again, perfect ability to do that, as far as we know. You have to attend committee hearings and learn about issues, learn about policy, get perspectives from experts. There is some limitation there because obviously if you have people giving testimony in a committee hearing, he may have some difficulty understanding everything that is said for now, although doctors say he will likely get better. But on the other hand, I think people should ask themselves, would you vote for someone who is deaf, who needed an accommodation of having uh, an ASL translator for them? Because if you would, his situation seems no different in that he's asking for a closed captioning accommodation. And as a staffer, I could say that's probably something we could work around. Same thing for, as a senator, you have to meet with constituents. You have to to meet with interest groups that are coming to to see you. Can you do that? Yeah, there's a little limitation there. I I will say there's a little limitation because if you're in a meeting and you're not quite able to process what is being said to you. But as a staffer, you know, look, if I were John Fetterman's chief of staff, and he were coming into office, I would sit down with him and we would work out a system. We probably asked people coming in for meetings, hey, could you provide us some information in advance about the main things you want to talk about, which is, by the way, what most groups do. You're a lobbyist. When you go in to meet with an elected representative, that's what you do. You tell them what you're going to argue to them in advance. So mm-hmm. 99% of the time uh, that would be done. And it wouldn't really change anything in the meeting. So I I think if there's any limitation there, it's extremely minor. The final thing I'll say is just that, you know, part of the job of being a U.S. senator or or any kind of elected person in the legislature is you have to meet with your colleagues and hear their arguments and give some of your own and try and persuade them. There is a little limitation there. But again, if I were a staffer, I would be able to figure that out probably working with colleagues. We would figure out a way to do meetings that accommodated what he needed and to exchange information in written form and to backfill 
and 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 fill in the details if if there were conversations where there were a couple of things that he missed. So my verdict overall is I don't see this as a significant limitation on his ability to do the job of a U.S. senator based on what we know medically. The only other fine point I'd make, though, is there's a difference between accommodating a disability, which I totally agree with you on. If, if we've got an elected official that has an, uh, a, a disability that can be accommodated, that he or she can do the job, 100% agree. Do it. No reason not to. The difference here is the ongoing health and longevity of somebody who at such a young age had a stroke. And that's where I would take into consideration. It's kind of like people say, would you ever vote for Joe Biden and or Donald Trump? And I, I'm like, no. And forget the politics of either one. They're both too damn old. And I'm not surely convinced they're going to keep their faculties, let alone their existence, long enough for a term till 2028. And I mean, that sounds crass, but these are legitimate things we discuss. So with Fetterman, I'm all for accommodating. And if he wins, his disabilities should be accommodated in office. But I think what raises the other question is his overall health and well-being. Mm. Well, I, I agree with you that it's fair for voters to take that into consideration. And just to bring this full circle, I just want voters to do it on the right basis. I don't want them to draw the wrong conclusions from, like you said, from the fact that he stumbled over some words in a debate or, you know, had an interview where he didn't sound as clear. Look, if Herschel Walker can offer daily word salads about apes and evolution, um, you know, and voters are like, yeah, that seems fine. Um, then, then clearly Fetterman's issues are a lot less. I'm a lot more comfortable, regardless of my politics, with John Fetterman's ability to do the job that I am with Herschel Walker's. But I, that's all I want is I just want people to, as far as we know from doctors, there is no elevated risk of a, of a further stroke. He's under medical care. Um, you know, he's still relatively young. Um, and, and this doesn't seem like something that should significantly limit him. But, you know, again, I, I, I leave it to voters. I just, I just want them to, to judge on the right basis. Um, all right, look, should we hit just one final thing? It, it looks like affirm, affirmative action in America may be done. Um, thoughts? Well, at there, college admissions. Oh, in college admissions and college admissions. Yeah. Um, maybe we should make a, I mean, look, we're going to get a verdict eventually, probably like six to nine months from now. So, you know, we could, we can hit it then, but anything stand out to you from the arguments before the Supreme court yesterday? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I don't believe in affirmative action in college applications from the standpoint of, um, the color of someone's skin should give them an upper hand in any way, shape, or, or capacity. And that was the argument being made by two colleges, one out of North Carolina, the other is Harvard, um, trying to defend their application processes. So like I got a kid who's going through the process now. She's worked her butt off her entire life in advanced courses and everything else. And I don't think someone who maybe isn't at the level of academics that she is should be able to take a position at school from her just because of the color of their skin. Look, I also think it underestimates the idea that people of minority races are somehow not as academically uh, able as those who aren't. I think that's not true. Now, the biggest group that is opposing affirmative action is actually not white people. It is Asians who feel that they have been the most uh, bumped off the list in uh, in favor of black students. And so that's kind of really the drive behind it because Asian students 
do advance academically very well. They're the least dropout rate of any race, if we're going to go by race. And so they're the ones pushing this to say affirmative action shouldn't be there. I, I actually agree with it. And I, I don't know how the Supreme Court's going to rule, but people keep saying it's going to be political. Mind you, the Washington Post, not a bastion of conservatism, just did a poll recently. And 63% of America, 63% of America agrees that race should not be taken into consideration during the college application process. I'll just put in a very quick plug on a recent show I did on Beyond Politics with Mark Oppenheimer of Tablet Magazine, who did a whole podcast series about the roots of current admissions policy in higher ed. And it goes back to the Ivy League trying to exclude Jews. And it's just Mm -hmm. very interesting. All the things they were doing so long ago are now basically the things that they're doing that end up excluding Asian students at disproportionate rates, there is an argument there. And I got to admit, I feel very conflicted on this point, and I'm still thinking about it. And on that note, we hope we have made all of you think as well. For Paul in absentia and Alicia, I'm Matt (laughs) Robeson. We will see you next time.